Hello, and welcome to season one of the London Writers Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we interview writer, editor, and writing tutor, Anna Wilson. Anna has published over 50 books for children and young teens, and she's won awards for a number of them. But in 2016, after the loss of her parents, she decided to try something new. She started her blog, Good Grief, to share and process her emotions. And this eventually led to her memoir, A Place for Everything, a story about her family life, what it was like to live with her mother's undiagnosed autism, and the experience of her caring for parents in their final years. It's a beautiful, beautiful memoir. And in our interview with Anna, she explains how her writing has evolved over time as her kids have grown up, from writing children's books to teen books to books for adults. We also talk about how she pieces together the narrative arc in her writing, how she brings specificity, the granular details of moments, into her memoir, and why she decided to push into difficult memories of her mother to include in her book. We also talk about her ongoing battle with self-doubt despite her prolific success, and some of the nuts and bolts topics like landing an agent and how to find and work with the right editor. Anna has a lot of writing friends. And so when we asked her what traits she's observed among them, she says, it takes quite a pig-headed attitude and quotes Margaret Atwood, show up, show up, show up, and the muse will too. It was so lovely to talk to Anna about her writing and editing process. She was warm and really gave us a wonderful insight into the process of writing memoirs and the publishing industry. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience online during lockdown in 2020. Let's get started. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Anna Wilson. So, Anna, one of the things that we'll be speaking a lot about tonight is your memoir that's coming out next month which started, or the, maybe the, the germs of it started in 2016 when you started your blog called Good Grief about midlife loss, new beginnings, and in particular, your relationship with your mother, which we'll, we'll dig a lot more into. And this led to the, the forthcoming book, which is your debut memoir called A Place for Everything, which tells the searing account of a mother's late stage diagnosis of autism and its far-reaching effects on a whole family. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is, I, I see, I, and I know we've spoken about this before, you've been a tutor for quite some time. Um, in fact, we've met on the Arvon Foundation, but you've been a tutor there. And you've been a tutor for the London Lit Lab and the Writer's Block. I feel like I could just keep talking about all the many things you've done and how much you've contributed to literature. I think it's wonderful. Um, but here's our official welcome. We're, uh, Matt and I are so happy to have you as part of the Salon podcast. Thank, Thank you, you, Anna. Good to be here. Thank you. So you joined us for one of our rituals that we do here at the London Writers Salon is the Writer's Hour, which uh, many people listening to and, and watching come to religiously. You joined us. And while many of us struggle to wake up for Writer's Hour, somehow you had managed not only to show up at Writer's Hour all dressed <laughs> up, but you had, you had gone for, uh, you went for a swim. And looking through your blog and other things, it seems like wild swimming is something that you enjoy doing is that something is that like a daily practice for you or where does wild swimming sit in your life now it is daily yeah 
in the winter it's maybe three times a week because it depends where I am and in the winter it's harder to find safe places to swim because obviously you can't really swim in a river because the you know the current's too high the river might be in spate the sea can be really rough the tides can be wrong so the winter's tough but I do try and go about three times a week but at this time of year it's actually twice a day at the moment (laughs) so wow I'm so jealous that sounds amazing (laughs) I sort of hesitate to say that knowing that so many people can't get to anywhere to swim during lockdown. So I feel very, very blessed at the moment. Do it on behalf of us. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So what, yeah, what does that give you? I did like maybe two weeks where I was by a little stream and it was cold as hell. And every morning I jump into it. After a while, you, your body starts to heat from within and it's something about it setting that at the beginning of the day. And I was curious, you know, does it, give you something physically, emotionally, spiritually? What does that give you? Yeah, I think all of those things. That whole physical shock thing is great, especially when it's really cold, because that's all you can deal with. So I found it actually really useful when I was dealing with grief, because it meant that every day, if I went swimming, all I could deal with at that moment was being in the moment and dealing with the cold and sort of surviving it. (laughs) And it helped to kind of shock me out of any negative thoughts or anything like that. And that was how I started swimming regularly, actually, with a friend who encouraged me to do it for that very reason. And then it became more than that. Yeah. So it actually feeds my writing a bit like, you know, walking and running can do the same. I know lots of other people use similar things, meditation, whatever. But these practices can really help the sort of the subconscious flow a bit more easily because it's quite easy at your desk to get really stuck on something and go round and round in circles. But go down to the beach, jump in the sea, and then quite often something is unlocked. That makes sense to me. I've seen that definitely in a lot of writers, especially writers who've been writing for years and years. There's a method of trying to unblock. So someone shared an image with me of this man on a mountain, standing halfway up a mountain. And there are two ways you can look at this. So either he looks looks up and thinks, or she, I've got so far to go, or he looks down and thinks, look how far I've come. Mm. And a lot of the writers I know, they can often look up and forget to look down. You've written so much. So when I look at your career from afar, I think, gosh, you've come so far. Are you always able to have that perspective? I'm terrible at having that perspective. And in fact, at the moment in lockdown, I've been having a really hard time writing. And my husband's been doing his nut because he says that I'm that exactly that. I'm always looking up and thinking I'll never reach the peak, you know, I'll never achieve what I've set out to achieve. And, you know, he has to sit down and give me a good talking to and say, look, you know, he, he quite often says to me, if you could talk to your 20 year old self, would you not say, look how far you've come? The reality is there's always more to do and there's always more to achieve. I don't think creative people are ever happy with what they've done. And if they are, then maybe that's not right. Cause maybe that, that <laughs> stops them creating. I don't know. I'm, perennially dissatisfied (laughs) you know we met at Arvon many many years ago I was an intern for one of the publishers Faber or I can't remember Quirkus one of them and you were writing Pup Idol which then came out in 2008 so that was very that was quite early on still if you look back to that Anna Wilson who was writing then what advice would you give her now probably the same that I should be giving myself now which is to believe in myself because I went to that course thinking I'm an editor who happens to have written a couple of books and I didn't really think much of what I'd written. Our tutor, Steve, took me aside and said, you are a writer. And it was like some kind of benediction, you know, and I I went home and I I said to my husband, I've had an epiphany. I'm a writer. (laughs) Oh, 
You've been a writer for years. What are you talking about? So that was Steve. That was Steve Oak. Who is, is yeah. he still a tutor on? Yeah, he's still an Arbonne tutor, and he also teaches at Bar Spa, which is obviously another part of my journey as well. I guess confidence is something that I'm I'm always battling with. I'm also curious because you've written so many books. They're different themes. So I was looking through and I was thinking, okay, cute puppies, cute kittens, we've got <laughs> monkeys, and then there's the sort of the the one-offs that you've written. And the nature writing, she's got the Paddington Bears, a one-off, the children's almanac as well. How did you come to choose these themes? Are they phases that you've just gone through? Is it because the publishers approached you or is it vice versa? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Definitely phases. I think there's a bit of a joke running through the family that my writing seems to have grown up with my children. And now that they're adults, I finally managed to write a book for adults. (laughs) That's really funny. My first book that was published was a picture book when my daughter was a baby. Then I started to write short stories that were the sort of thing you'd read to a sort of a four or five-year-old at bedtime. Then I started writing chapter books that my daughter was reading herself. Then slightly longer novels. Honestly, my writing does seem to have grown up with them, so definitely phases. But I think that's because they've inspired me so much that at that particular point in their life, I was listening to them. So their dialogue their activities, what they were doing with their friends, what I was listening in on, that all fed into my writing. Mm. And of course, it's just life, isn't it? Life feeds your writing. So it's whatever you're experiencing at that time feeds into what you write about. And my last series for children, Vlad, the world's worst vampire, that's actually going back a bit. That's for seven to tens. So I've sort of stepped back in time a bit. I wrote that while my parents were quite ill. I was actually having therapy at the time. In the fourth, I think it's the fourth book, little Vlad the vampire is really struggling with his relationship with his mother. <laughs> he sort of confides in their kind of butler, who's a bit like a sort of a, a lurch figure, you know, like the Adams family. And he sort of says, you know, I'm never going to, you know, satisfy her. I'm never going to make her happy. And I wrote this and my husband read it and he went, oh my God, you just basically turned your therapist into a great ogre butler. <laughs> and I sent it to my therapist and she just roared with laughter and said, yep. You've just worked through it all by writing about yourself as a vampire. Well done. That's fantastic. That's the joy of wow. that's the joy of children's publishing, right? That's yeah. the beauty of it. Yeah. Sometimes publishers ask me to do stuff. So actually, Vlad was a case in point. I was approached to write that series, and it came at the right time because I, I had no ideas. I was really struggling because of everything that was going on, and so it was lovely to be given a brief and then to be able to run with it and create my own characters. And mm-hmm. similarly. The Nature Almanac. I had written the blog that you mentioned earlier. I had out of that actually written a picture book that is yet to be published. And I was showing it to my editor. And off the back of that, she rang my agent and said, do you think Anna would write some nonfiction? So, yeah, that came out of a publisher's idea and our collaboration. It can work both ways. How many books have you written? We were debating this. We couldn't figure out. We couldn't count the number. Do you know how many you've actually written? I counted them from the shelves <laughs> but it is about 50 yeah if you include them, too shabby but I mean some of them are tiny <laughs> and so if you look at the the journey of you from that first picture book all the way up into this this memoir some of these books the publisher approached you some of them you pitched as you've written more and become more prolific and more work is out there has it become easier to either pitch ideas or What is it like being someone who's written 50 books versus someone who's listening who might have none? Is it easier for you having done those 50? For a time it was because I had the same editor and she was really my champion. 
So she could go to an editorial meeting, an acquisitions meeting, and she could say, Anna's got a new idea. And, you know, I had a bit of a track record, so that worked fine. And then she left and I had to start all over again, really, and actually ended up leaving that publisher because I'd lost my champion, really. And so now, now it is tough because in the children's book world, it's changed so much in the past five to six years. It's so celebrity heavy. So I've already got a really good sales record and mine's average. I haven't got a fantastic sales record compared to people like Frank Cottrell Boyce or Maz Evans or, you know, the the sort of the middle grade writers that are up there, Cresta Cowell, people like that. I'm not in their league and I'm certainly not in David Williams' league. So it's really tough for children's writers right now. And then pitching the adult, because it was so different writing a, a memoir, you know, it was a completely different market. I had to get a different agent because my children's agent wouldn't represent me. She didn't know what to do with it. So I just, yeah, went through the, the slush pile again. I had to submit my manuscript like a newbie. The whole experience of being published as an adult writer has felt like I'm a new girl all over again. So, yeah, it's tough. It is interesting how they are such little microcosms in the room. If you work in children's, it it feels like a wonderful little pond but you're right I I understand the changes I've definitely got friends uh, in the publishing house who say especially since the mergers happened there's this sort of edge towards wanting needing to be commercial yes I think how it can work is I've definitely kept in touch with everybody so as editors move around I've got a couple of people who I can say to my agent or maybe send it to them you know it's not a guarantee but it's a foot in the door that other people don't have so that's been great and also the other thing it's done is it's opened me up to being able to do tutoring because I've got a bit of a, a track record. You know, people can see that I've been published. They, they know that I know what I'm talking about, hopefully. That second strand to my work, if you like, has been easier because of the publication. It is interesting to me that when you mentioned how on that course, Steve Oak gave you the confidence to believe you're a writer. This is after having written a few books and this is, you know, even though you were an editor, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't struggle with that, no matter where they are on their journey yeah it's a, it's a real fear like everyone feels it like me really and it yeah. sounds like going into a new area as well again you're having to go through that again oh definitely I think so there's something very scary about sending your work out there as well especially when it's very personal you know you sort of you read it yourself and you give it to your nearest and dearest and they tell you it's great and you you've always got this little voice thinking yeah but what if what if people think it's terrible yeah yeah <laughs> They think you really, you know, put yourself out there for no reason. And actually, that brings me to your to your blog. I remember years ago, you must have started writing your blog and you shared it on Facebook. And we were in touch, but not, you know, we weren't talking regularly. And I read it and I remember thinking, gosh, this is so honest and so raw. Was that difficult to start? That's how you started talking about what you'd gone through with losing your mother or your mother going through um, the diagnosis of autism. Can you talk us a little bit through that journey? I started with my father because my father died two years before my mother and I spent the first year of that period of grief dealing with my mother and her diagnosis it was a terrible terrible year and I came out the end of that year with my own health problems and stuff and I remember we came down here we hadn't moved to Cornwall yet and we came down to Cornwall for a week and I got up one morning and it was the anniversary of my father's death and I just thought I've got to write about that because it was just it was quite incredible. I was in Thailand when he was dying and I got a call from my sister to say, can you come back now? And we were on a remote island and it took me 36 hours to get back to be with dad. And he had been given 36 hours left by the palliative care nurses. 
and he lived for 37 hours. And so I had an hour with him before he died. I mean, I still think about it. The other day I was thinking, how amazing to have had an hour with my dad while he was dying and to watch him die. It was unbelievable to be with him. And so I I had to write about it because I've always coped with everything through writing as far back as I can remember. If I was in a mood when I was a little girl, I would scribble in a diary. If I was super happy, I'd write a poem. You know, that's just the way I've dealt with everything. And so I had to do it. And I just thought, I don't know why I thought I'd write a blog. I really don't know why, but I just thought I'm going to write that scene and I want it to be crafted and I want it to be not just for me. I just want to put it out there. And I honestly didn't think anyone would read it. Definitely didn't think anyone would comment. And then it just became, it was like someone had taken a cork out of a bottle and I just thought I've got so much to say about grieving and about my parents and about my relationship with them. And I think I wrote almost one post a week to start with. There's there's a lot in that initial year, 2016. And then, yeah, I just kept posting stuff because people were messaging me and just saying, write more this is great you know my boss at fast bar steve's boss julia she said you've got to write this you've got to make this into a book and i yeah i was still thinking yeah yeah but it's just me and i'm just pouring my heart out (laughs) when you you wrote those first posts what did that look like you said you wanted to not just write for yourself you wanted to share it so what what did that first version of sharing look like I definitely spent some time on it. It wasn't just a splurge. So I did craft it. I did mould it into a scene that had a, a chaptery feel about it. It had a beginning, a middle and an end. And I guess I was slightly self-consciously playing with a certain style of writing that I hadn't used before. But I knew I wanted to keep it short and sweet. And I knew I wanted it to be good enough that someone would want to re- read. You know, this sounds terrible, but mm. some blogs you read... They just aren't edited or crafted at all. And they're just a complete sort of word vomit. <laughs> mm. And I didn't want it to be that because I thought, well, I can do that in my journal. You know, that's my morning pages. I don't want it to be that. So I was very aware of the fact that it was a blog and that hopefully somebody would read it. I guess I thought my family might read it. and I wanted mm. to. Did you actively send it to them and say, here, I wrote this? Or did you kind of keep it quiet? Do you remember? We have a lot of bloggers who are listening that I got mm. started with writing through a blog as well. The way I started was I decided to take a sabbatical from my job for seven months and just write about what the hell I was doing, which I didn't really know at the time. But I sent an email to like 50 friends and family saying, I'm starting this blog. If you want to follow along, here's how you can subscribe. That's how it started for me. And I guess I'm kind of curious the origin story of that. So do you remember the, what that first share looked like for you? I wasn't as organized as that. <laughs> I think I sent it to my sister and my cousins and that was it. And I've never asked anyone to subscribe because I'm, I'm hopeless at that kind of thing. Maybe I should. Yeah. Eventually it went onto Facebook because I do remember yeah, seeing then, yeah, because regularly sister, sharing it. Yeah. My sister and a couple of my friends said put it on Facebook. So I did. Yeah. And who was, who was commenting? Because you already had a little bit of an audience probably from your children's side of things. Did you find that they were coming and reading about your, this very different subject? booksellers that I knew were and other writers that was it really no 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 actual readers that I know of no no children's book readers I mean children wouldn't have been anyway I don't think so no I I didn't get a sense of that I think it's interesting who your first readers are I guess 
those booksellers are adult readers. So yeah. you said something really interesting, and it's something that we've spoken about before: the difference between the the word vomit and then something that's crafted for a reader. And sometimes I say I, I write for me, but I edit for you. I was curious: how do you find that that line? I guess maybe because you're prolific, you've written a bunch of books, you've worked with editors. Are there any kind of tricks and tips or a judgment on am I just vomiting here or is there a story that someone might enjoy? Do you have any practices that you use to, to help gauge that? I definitely have a shape, a sort of narrative arc in mind with shorter pieces. With actually writing the memoir, that was a whole different thing. But um, yeah, with writing blogs or short stories or articles, anything like that, I initially do a complete vomit because I don't necessarily know what the point is of what I'm writing. I just have an idea and I go for it. It's a bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle. I have maybe a paragraph here, paragraph there, little notes here. Then I find, oh, I've actually repeated myself there and there, so I'll move that to there. And then it starts to form a shape, which is how I write my novels for children as well. I never, I'm hopeless at doing plans. So I'll write a chapter because I fancy it. And then I'll write another chapter and it might not flow on. But after a while, I'll have a critical mass of words and I'll start to feel a shape coming together. And it is literally like doing a jigsaw puzzle. I might have done the edge of the puzzle and a bit of bit of the middle. And I'm trying to see how I can join the edges to the middle. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, bit, makes total sense. Brain. It's your editorial brain. I feel like it's your editorial hat mm. coming on. Yeah, well, and actually, when I read somebody else's raw, raw manuscript, like a, a student's manuscript, so they've never been edited before, they're not published, whatever, that's the same thing. I sort of go, I sort of plunge into, it's like, it is like swimming, sort of plunge in and then go, ah, oh, okay, so you've got this character doing that and you've got that scene over there. You haven't quite seen where they're going yet. Maybe we could cut that chunk out, move that along. And that's how I sort of give my feedback, really. Hmm. You know, I, I've worked with a few memoir writers and often they struggle with creating um, a setting, especially when it's a complex setting. And then reading your work, I thought, actually, you do this really well. And I feel like there's this specificity, you know, this concept of specificity breeds universality, and you really take us into the heart of a moment. Is that something you do consciously? Are you, do you think there's a, that's part of the magic of, of you trying to build a world for us? I mean, I don't do that in a first draft by any means, but it's definitely in the back of my mind that that's what's needed because there's nothing worse than reading setting for the sake of it. Sometimes people just fall in love with the setting of their novel or whatever it is, and they want to tell you, you know, exactly how the light shines on the water and the taste of the chocolate or whatever it is. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with the story or the characters, and you just end up getting bored and and really not enjoying the book if that happens. So I think my drafting, in my drafting and my editing, I definitely think hard about that. Don't always get it right, which is why I need an editor. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say that the other thing that I find people struggle with when they're writing memoirs is knowing what to include. And you've included some things that are pretty harrowing and so raw and touching. Like you describe, you know, look on your mother's face and your emotions as a child witnessing that. How did you make those distinctions? Was there stuff that you didn't include? Was there a lot that you took out? Yeah, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because I know she's listening, but huge thanks to Kate, my editor, because she pushed me a bit on that and I'm really grateful she did. In my first draft, I I was quite passive in some of those scenes. I was sort of recounting them. It was like I was writing a diary saying, 
this happened and then this happened. And Kate quite rightly said, you've got to take us there. You know, the reader needs to feel it. And I knew, and I knew it. I mean, I knew it even before she said it. And when she said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I know. And then, oh, it was awful. It was awful. Kate, Kate just said, ha ha, you know, you know, you're being watched. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being watched all the time. <laughs> no, but I mean, I do, genuinely, I do genuinely mean it. It was, it was necessary, but it was really tough. Yeah. I was saying this to Matt before we were chatting to you. I was just saying to Matt, I was like, I wonder if you feel the same emotion I did reading this. Cause I, I've known you, but I've never obviously seen these backstories. I sat there staring at the computer and my partner was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. I'm just, I just feel really sad. I just, I wish that she didn't have to go through this. And I, I was thinking it was so heart wrenching for me. So it was a really well done job in terms of mm. writing and editing. And I'll, I'll echo that too. I mean, I, I don't, don't know you. This is the first time we've really spoken. And I, I yeah, did the same. I was sitting on the couch today, just kind of like deep in thought with your story. And because not everyone might know even what we're talking about. So we, we jumped around a little bit. So you started your blog as a processing the grief of your, the loss of your father. Where did that merge into? So that eventually you started talking about your relationship with your mother, which eventually led to the book. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, it's an interesting one because... It got to a certain point with writing the blog where I thought, I've got to write a book about my dad. I've got to write a book about grief and dying and him. And then people kept saying, what's the book about? And I'd sort of meander off a bit and start talking about mum and, you know, and I'd say, oh, it's got a bit of nature writing in it. And I remember I actually, I got on the train once and ended up sitting next to an editor I know from Chicken House, which is a children's publisher, completely out of the blue, just ended up sitting next to her. And she said, what are you writing? And I started rambling about the blog and how I was going to turn it into a book. And she just looked at me and she said, you have to just be able to tell me what it's about. I think you need to really think about what this is about. And I know that's so obvious. But I went home thinking, damn it, she's right. And then I went swimming with a friend and she just turned to <laughs> me and she said, you know, it's about your mum, don't you? And I was like, oh, it can't be because everything in my whole life has always been about mum. I can't write a book about her. I need to give a voice to somebody else. And then I went home and thought, no, it's about mum. <laughs> it was a really hard process. And I remember the same swimming friend said to me, you need to go to the place of most resistance with your writing for it to be mm. authentic. And she was right. So I hope that answers the question, but it's a mm. difficult one to answer because it was a, a mess. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so then did that shift what you were writing on on the blog or did that just kind of tie the thread together of, of what it was about or did actually then you started to go deeper into the relationship with your mom and what you were experiencing then the first draft it gave me the thread mm -hmm. for ages I couldn't think where does this start you know where where on earth do I start some of it's to do with childhood some of it's to do with now and then um I realized I had to have a dramatic scene and basically the most dramatic scene was when mum was was so ill that I had to step in and that's how my life changed as well so that sort of became obvious in the drafting but it was a constant process of changing and editing and redrafting and rewriting I mean I've got so many versions of this book on my computer still very very hard to find out where they are how many do you know how many versions you have i mean i must have over 20 i must have yeah wow so you you didn't have any over you know because there's so many different methods if, for writers out there for planning instruction was there any did you did you use any methodology in particular do you have one in your head that you used i i read a lot of other memoirs to see how other people did it and i tried to borrow some ideas off some of them but in the end 
that didn't work for me in an obvious structural way. I think I learned a lot from reading other memoirs because I think I, I really believe that's the way you learn to write. Exactly. But at one point I was obsessed with The Outrun by Amy Lichot. Absolutely obsessed. Ah. I think I read it six times. I've underlined bits of it. I've dogged bits of it. I've copied bits of it out. You know, ridiculous. And I was looking at the structure of hers and I was thinking, right, so what I need is I need a thematic structure. I need chapters about this aspect of mum and chapters about the nature and chapters about dad. Really, all I was doing was gathering my blog together in piles and just going that, 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 that. And it wasn't a book. Again, that was sort of just part of the process, I guess. Agonising. I mean, I wish I had a process where I could plan, write, move on, but I just can't. I can't do that. Yeah, but what you're talking about makes sense, right? It's looking at masterworks that we believe in. To kind of tie it all together, now that you've written a book, can you explain what it's about for all this? So we've started to read it. It doesn't come out till July can you give us a kind of a brief synopsis? What What is the book about? I mean, it is about mum. It's about how we didn't discover that she had autism until she was 72, by which time she had been so severely ill with mental health problems that she couldn't live on her own anymore. She was in a residential care home. Learning that she had autism was like somebody had let me and my sister out of a glass box because for years we'd been screaming, there's something wrong. I mean, I use wrong in inverted commas because I don't believe that autism is having something wrong. But for mum, there was something different about her. There was something that made her feel that something wasn't quite right. But nobody would ever listen or help us join up the pieces. And so the book is me making sense of the woman that I'd thought I'd always known but had I known that she had autism perhaps I would have treated her differently perhaps our relationship would have been different so it's a recasting of my life and her life through the lens of autism I suppose. It's beautiful it's called A Place for Everything it's been published by HarperCollins it's out in July 2020 we'll be sharing the links um, in the podcast uh, transcript yeah it's, it's really beautiful and I, I can see this you know if I'm, I'm sort of still reading it but I can see this journey that you're undertaking you're sort of discovering yourself. Mm. You're shifting your your worldview perspective as you're navigating the sort of loss of your the mother you knew. Yeah, definitely. And, and one one of the things that stuck with me, or you know, again, I'm still reading it, but is how truthful it is. And what I mean by that is the thought process you're having about your mum while she's whooping and while she's make, causing a scene in the, the supermarket, the thought process you're having and actually being honest with what she's going through. I mean, that really struck me because we were talking about truth telling. And one of our writers uh, in our writer's hour read a quote by James Baldwin about as much truth as one can bear. That process of writing the truth, how was that? Did it take a few takes to write it down or were there things that you wanted to hold back on and but you push forward anyway. I know you touched on a little bit, but that truth-telling for you, what was that process like? I had to be truthful about it because I needed to be heard because, as I say, for years I've been trying to say there's something not quite right. And actually, even after mum's diagnosis, there were friends of hers, so of her generation, who didn't believe it, and they were quite angry that I was saying that this was... I was saying, this is great news. We found out mum's got autism and people were saying, no, she, no, she hasn't. She's not very good at maths and she's a perfectly sociable person and all the sort of, you know, wow. uh, conceptions that they had. So they were quite angry. So the book was really a, a bit of a howl <laughs> to, 
to borrow from Andy's book. <laughs> I mean, it really was. It was a bit of a going out into the woods and howling and just saying, this is how it really was. Please listen finally to how it really was. I went on a second Arbonne course, actually, which was writing fiction for adults while my parents were both very ill. And I had a private conversation one night with one of the other students. And he said to me, you have got to stop worrying about your mother reading your writing. So as I was writing it, I was thinking, I've got to stop worrying about who's going to read this because it's got to be truthful. And if I try and soften the edges, smooth it down, you know, and Kate helped me a lot with this because I think I was still doing that a bit. You know, for it to be authentic, I had to go there. But I've spoken to other memoir writers since who've said it is. It's like you're bleeding all over the page. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that was, that was exactly what I was. I was really curious as I was reading that, how your sister or other family members had received or even even your children or your husband. Yeah. That side of you. Have you had much of a reaction from whoever you've shared it with so far? I made sure that I sent it to my sister and my uncle, my mum's brother, before I submitted it to anyone. And I said, look, I've written this book. I fully intend to try and get it published. But obviously, if you're unhappy with this, we need to talk about it. I thought, I can't. It's not fair. And I also waited. Sounds awful, but I waited until my mother had died. (laughs) It just wouldn't have been ethical for me to write about her while she was still alive. But my husband, so yeah, he wrote, he read an early draft and didn't actually say very much. And he's now only just now rereading it. So it's a bit late if he's got anything to say. <laughs> and my daughter read it. My daughter's studying to be a medic. So she was really interested in the mental health aspect of it, which she obviously remembers as a, a younger teen, but not in the same detail. And she was very moved by it. So I've had a lot of support from them all, yeah. And it's really, it's super hard to be public, even if you've written something, even just from the little things that sort of I've done publicly or Matt and I have done publicly, we do them, but we still think, ugh, you know, I wish no one would see me. Have you felt that? Have you felt vulnerable? I do feel vulnerable, but I feel that it's such an important subject. I mean, leaving aside anything that's happened to me or my family, the more people I speak to with autism, particularly women and girls the more I am determined to get this book out to as many people as possible because it's so misunderstood and there's so little chance of diagnosis. And even when you diagnose, the support isn't there. I was speaking to a man earlier today who was diagnosed age 48. And honestly, his story is, I mean, he's written about it publicly as well, but he attempted to take his own life just as my mother did. He's gone through the mental health services and everything I was talking to him about. It was like we were both just going, yes, yes, yes. You know, this happened to me. Oh, my goodness. You know, I've almost put myself to one side with it, really. So when people say, oh, my goodness, it must have been so hard for you and everything. I'm genuinely at the stage now where I think it's not about me. It's about it's about mum and it's about other women and girls like her. Right. You're allowing people to be seen in the way that you've talked about your life. When did that intention occur? So was it from the onset as you were going through the publishing process or now as you're starting to talk to people about it, is this bigger intention arising to the forefront? Yeah, I think the latter, because once I'd been um, accepted by the publisher, there was obviously a certain amount of editing and redrafting, as I've said. And one of the things Kate and I talked about was how to organise the chapters and we came up, I can't remember now, it might have been Kate's idea, so I can't remember, but one of us came up with the idea of quoting from other sources on autism. So I ended up doing a vast amount of reading to do that. And in the process, was talking to more people, getting in touch with more people. And that's when I think it really hit home that 
I needed to do this for others as well as for myself. I, I don't want that to sound, I don't know, self-serving. No, I think it's beautiful. I can understand that. Is there much out there right now in the way that you're talking about it around these topics? There's very little. I think I'm writing saying this, this is the first book that's been written from the perspective of a child of a woman with autism. There are other books where people have written about their children who have autism. There are a couple about girls. It's mainly about boys and men. So it's quite unusual, I think. I didn't know that when I wrote it. I found that out and that sort of helped my pitch. I found out <laughs> listening to Women's Hour. <laughs> I hadn't realised until I came across a programme by chance that it was such a problem for women and girls. I'm really curious now that you've, you're here, so you've got your book coming out in the, in the summer, but you've also got a huge history in children's books. Has this changed your view of publishing? Do you now want to focus more on adult writing? I'd like to be greedy and be able to keep both <laughs> because I do love writing for children and I've actually gone back to writing picture books. So I've written a couple this year that are in the pipeline now. I've got one more nature book coming out as well. So for the next couple of years, at least, I can still call myself a children's author. So hopefully that will continue. And I just never say never because I don't really know what I want to write about next. I'm trying to write a novel at the moment for adults, which is unusually for me plotted out and the plot the plot line is sitting on my desk at the moment. But I'm finding it hard in lockdown to write, actually. I'm finding it hard to write characters that I believe in and the dialogue is really tripping me up. Going back to the, the theme of truth, do you have any advice for someone who's trying to tell the truth but maybe is, is struggling to be that vulnerable or any advice on, on how to start that process? What have you used to help tell the truth better? I've always kept a journal and I really kept it religiously when mum and dad were ill to the point where I use those really fat paper chase journals, you know, the, what, the, with the cloth sort of covers. And I, mm. it usually takes me a couple of years to get through one. I think I filled up two whole notebooks in a year of mum and dad's, you know, the worst, the worst time. And I was so truthful in those because it was journaling. So I was just writing like no one was watching. <laughs> and I used them a lot then when I was writing the book, because I went back to fact check things and I would phone my sister and say, look, I wrote this in my journal on Monday, the whatever, you know, do you remember this? And I think write like no one's watching is the only way to really get it initially. And then it's up to you in the crafting and the editing, isn't it? How much you want to actually reveal to an audience. I just have one last question around the title, because A Place for Everything seems like a really beautiful title, especially when you read the book and you see the theme that comes through, which is the fact that your mother would have a place for everything. She was very particular about how things were kept. Did you have any other titles in mind? What's your process? And I realise sometimes you're, you're probably, probably your editor might get involved with this as well. Yeah. What was the process of choosing a title for you? I'm really bad at titles. So the working title was Missing the Boat because I thought she's missed the boat of diagnosis. And I had quite a lot of water images anyway in the book for various reasons. So I thought, oh, that's it. I'll go with that. And I always, actually, I always knew it was a working title because it doesn't tell you anything. Um, so Kate and I were chatting um, in one of our wonderful, wonderful editorial conversations that we had. And I said, you know, what are we going to do about the title? And she said, oh, you know, there'll be some phrase or something in the writing that will just spring to mind and it'll, it'll come out of what you've already written. And then we almost looked, at, I'm sure it was almost simultaneous. We looked at each other and went, a place for everything, a place for everything. <laughs> nice. So it literally just kind of sprang out. Of, I think I'd repeated it so many times in my first draft. She probably had to cut it out about 
150 times. <laughs> <laughs> it was confirmed in the chat that that was how it was. It was. It's amazing. It's never happened like that before with the cycle. But there is something really lovely about that when you're when you're reading a book and you see that phrase. It's almost like I, if I were to cut open your book, that's what I would see, that colour running through. I mean, you could read into it. It was sort of like your place. Like, where do you fit? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, that was a subconscious thing, but that's definitely there, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. I know we've kind of bounced around a lot, but but talking about your conversations with Kate, what does that relationship look like between you and what sounds like Kate is an excellent partner in this? Are they phone calls? Is it every week? Is it every month? What did that interaction look like between you? I mean, I think we've only met for editorial conversations maybe three times. Mm. Kate, I have to confirm that. But they were very, very long conversations. And I mean, I'm not just saying that because she's here. I'm really not. But they were probably the best editorial conversations I've ever had because she's so insightful. I would sit there feeling as though I was having a chat, but I'd come away feeling exhausted, like I'd been through a kind of three-hour tutorial. <laughs> and everything would sort of just filter through after the event and and everything would just make sense because she's just so good at picking out strands and themes and you know, um, knowing what to bring to the fore and what to knock back and what to get rid of. And she was so sensitive because obviously it's, you know, she's not talking about characters, which is what I'm used to talking about. She's talking about real people. I mean, I've absolutely loved every minute of working with her and I hope she's listening when I say, I hope this isn't the last time we work together. <laughs> so yeah, it's great, really great. It's that, that relationship between an editor and a writer is so intimate, right? Because you have, they have to yeah. really... I've been lucky with most of my editors. Sometimes it's been harder than others, but this was a good one. (laughs) Sorry, did you choose Kate or was she given you? She was given me (laughs) (laughs) from the heavens above. (laughs) If someone's on the hunt for an editor, whether it's someone to read over their blog posts or uh, work with their book, maybe they're self-publishing and they want to hire someone, what sort of qualities would you look for in an editor? So it sounds like you had a, a connection there and she was quasi life coach and you know editor into one are there any other qualities you would look for in in a, a good editor i think um someone who is sensitive to what you're wanting to write and how you're wanting to write it so my worst editorial experiences have been with people who really want to be writing it themselves so they end up trying to put their own writing on it their own voice their own take um and they're not really listening and and I say this as much because I have well I still am an editor just edited a project for someone you have to put aside your own wants and desires almost if that makes sense you have to be willing to really listen and and hear what it is that the other person's trying to do and there has to be compromise because there might be times when you think oh I just really want them to cut that bit out and they really want to hang on to it and you know you've got to be able to develop the relationship so that you can both be listening to each other and be willing to compromise I think it might be a, a, a rabbit hole, but I'm curious about the creative writing that you teach. Mm. I'm not sure what the question is, but just what what do you do? What what sort of teaching do you do and how often and, and what's that look like? So do you mean how, how does anyone teach creative writing? <laughs> well, I, have, I have been asked that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm just sure around your philosophy. Like how what how do you what do you think is needed to to, to write well, yeah. to master the craft, to level up? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because I was never taught it. So, um, I mean, some of my harshest critics have said, oh, for goodness sake, don't you just do English literature and read loads of books and, you know, Charles Dickens didn't go to creative writing college. 
(laughs) (laughs) I think it's a brilliant thing to do and I wish I had been able to do it myself because what I hope to do is give people a toolbox. They might already be a writer and not realise it, but they might be spending too much time on setting, not understanding how dialogue works, having no concept of narrative arc, whatever it is. And when I teach a whole course, I try to give a week to each sort of area of of writing. So might do a week on pace, a week on structure, a week on dialogue, and then pull it all together. That's what I would do if if I were teaching a whole course. If I'm tutoring or mentoring someone, it's much more like an editorial relationship. So I'll look at somebody's whole piece of work and I'll try and tease out the various themes and so on. But along the way, I might give them little exercises or prompts or hints to improve their dialogue or their setting or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's sort of giving, giving a toolbox, really. Do you have any favourite exercises? If anyone wants to do a little practice of writing more creatively, or any exercises you would send us on our way with? My favourite one is the setting one, actually, which I'm going to be teaching on Saturday. And it's a visualisation exercise, but it's sort of using all the senses, so not just sight. So it's, it's like mindfulness, really. I usually give an idea, like if you're writing for teens, I quite often say, imagine a bedroom, because the bedroom is really important for a teenager. And then I'll say, you know, there's no one in it, but I want you to think about everything else that is in the room, because that will actually help define the character as well. So I'll say, you know, first of all, right, close your eyes, imagine what you can see in this room. You know, is it is it dirty? Is it clean? Is it ordered? Is it messy? Are there books? Are there, is there music? Whatever. And I'll take them through. We'll spend a few minutes. They'll visualise that. Then I'll take them through, you know, what does it smell like? Are there smells coming in from an open window? So go through all the senses in that way. Everyone with their eyes closed. And then we'll sort of just come out of that. And everyone normally comes out sort of a bit, oh, <laughs> a bit sleepy. <laughs> and then it'll be sort of, right, 10 minutes, write a scene set in that room and you can put the character in, you can give them someone to talk to, or you can just describe a, an emotional state. But the setting will feed into all of that. And that's really fun to do. I love that. Mm. That sounds really fun. That's great. Have- it sounds like we need to take your course. <laughs> Well, actually, we've, you know, Anna will hopefully be doing some, some classes with us at the London Writer Salon, which would be great. I, I have one final question to, to leave on, and it is quite open-ended, but you have been around a lot of writers, either you've been an editor for them or your friends or they're in the industry. Are there any commonalities you see amongst them, common mindsets, personality traits? What does it take to be a writer for years and years? I think it takes quite a pig-headed attitude (laughs) I think you have to be pretty disciplined I I love Margaret Atwood when she says show up show up show up and the muse will too in other words don't talk to me about oh I'm just waiting for the muse to come I'm just waiting for that moment when I'm going to feel all writery and then I'll write something no you've got to show up every single day and if it's just the morning pages that's fine but you've got to do some writing every single day so discipline a curious combination of, of never being satisfied, but also being quite dogmatic about what it is you want to say. I know that mm. sounds contrary, but, you know, this is my story and I want to tell it like this, but, oh, it's not good enough. So I've got to redraft it and I've got to redraft it and I've got to redraft it, which is also partly discipline, I suppose, as well. And then mm. being very observant. So always on the lookout for stories. And if that means stealing them from somebody else because I do that quite a lot I don't mean other writers I mean people I have conversations with they'll tell me something about their life and I'll go write that down might go in a book (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that. I love that. I love all of that. Pig-headedness, determination, showing up, being persistent, being observant. That actually sounds like a very beautiful character. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anna. This was great. We loved it. In the chat box, people are getting a lot from this conversation. So your book, A Place for Everything, about the account of your mother's late stage diagnosis of autism. It's out in July, July 9th. Great. Do you have any asks of us other than read the book? Any, anything we can do to, to help? Well, yeah, definitely buy the book, people. <laughs> it's available as an ebook and an audiobook as well, so you don't have to lug around a hardback if you're not keen on that. Can we yeah, follow you on well, social media? Yeah, follow um, me on social media. I'm on Twitter at AC Wilson Writer and Instagram and I have a Facebook page. I'm everywhere. I'm, I'm completely um I'm completely tart on social media. I've got two blogs um, <laughs> and, a, and a website. <laughs> yeah, follow me on social media and retweet me and chat to me on Twitter. I love Twitter. I know it's going through a bad phase at the moment. Everyone's grumpy about it, but I love Twitter. Great. Well, we'll share all of that links and everything in the show notes. Anna, thank you so much. We loved it. Imagine a a round of applause right now. (laughs) Thanks, Anna. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you'd like to join these weekly interviews live with a chance to ask our guest writers your burning questions, well, you can become a member at londonwriterssalon.com forward slash pound membership. You'll get access to our library of salon interviews and workshops, our private online community, where you'll find world-class resources on the craft of writing and find creative friends. Honestly, we think it's the best writing community in the world, and we would love for you to join us. And if you're a writer struggling to find time to write, like so many of us, you're welcome to join our free virtual hour-long silent writing sprints called Writer's Hour. We hold them four times every Monday to Friday, and all you need is something to write with, a hot drink to cheers us with, and the desire to write. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, and frankly, anyone who just needs to get something done. And you can sign up for free at writershour.com, and we hope to see you there. Until we write again. Cheers, everyone.